our DT systems, the Rap 1400 or 1400 if you like doing it that way, but it's the Rap 1400. It's a collar that is super reliable, ready to rock, and it's super handy because you can hold it in your hand while you're shooting your shotgun during duck season. So it's a cool unit for you and your dog come hunting season so that you've got control over any situation. Anything the dog throws at you during the hunt is right there, easy and accessible. Bingo, bango, bongo. If you don't want that one, check out the H. 201820. It's the DT Systems and it's dog tested, dog tough. Our baby Gunner Kennels. Man, one of the things that I love about Gunner Kennels is they're thinking about our older hunting buddies. Old Buck, he hangs out in a gunner kennel when he goes to and fro. And in his, we've got the ortho pad. He's got the old joints. And, and even if your dog's not old like Buck, you just want a little bit of added protection as you're rolling down the road to keep that dog from bouncing around a little bit. So the ortho pad, super huge. If you got a younger dog that may dig a little bit, maybe chew a little bit, that performance pad is going to be clutch as well. So check it out. It's the full kit brought to you by Gunner Kennels, always innovating our industry and always keeping your dog safe. Slide in the DMs if you'd like to learn more about getting you and your dog into a gunner kennel. Force fetch. What is it? It's super intimidating to so many people, yet it's not that difficult. I built a step-by-step process that helps you understand it. You and your dog can be successful in it, and it takes the intimidation away of the process so that you and your dog can get to your goals. That's what it's built for. Let me teach you how I do it so that you and your dog can do it. Different breeds, different personalities, problem solving, and more. Check it out. Links in the description. The Force Fetch Course. Baby. But those videos are only as long as what they're watching, you know, which is only five minutes. All right. You know, I'm not out there for 30 minutes with a nine week old or even a 16 week old. I'm top heavy with bird contacts until the dog is showing and understanding and proficiency. And then I back off bird contacts and increase nose time. So you keep that work ethic and drive going in that capacity. So I'll take a puppy and I'll literally have them out there for two to three minutes and they'll have three or four manual float trap wire basket bird contacts. All right, everybody, welcome to another episode. I'm excited for this one. It's always a selfish thing bringing in a, a setter and grouse guy or gal because it is one of my favorite things to do outside of duck hunting. So we've got Kyle Warren from Paint River Setters on the line here. Really excited to introduce him to you all. Kyle, do me a favor and tell everybody a little bit about yourself. Sure. Bob, thanks for having me on the show. Uh, always uh, great to talk to new people and uh, network. So I, I appreciate the opportunity to, to chat with you guys. As far as uh, just a, a quick background on myself, I grew up in upstate New York in the Catskills, lived there for the first 39 years of my life, trained dogs since I was a little kid, started professionally doing it 1996, full time from then to now. Started off with just doing obedience and bird dog stuff. I got into dogs doing bird dogs because one of my aunts was a professional breeder, bred German short hairs and labs. I kind of went down the short hair path just with what my father was interested in and what we did together growing up and uh, trained shelter dogs, my neighbor's dogs, my teacher's dogs. And when I was a teenager, I 
opened up my own business and it just kind of, you know, I took care of the dogs, the dogs took care of me and it just grew into what it was. I was training 30, 40 dogs a week in private one-on-one lessons, you know, for, uh, I guess it would be 20, 22 years like that. Before that, we, I grew up on a small farm. We converted the farm into uh, the kennel, the barn into kennels. And I take in like 13 dogs at a time while I was in school and stuff. And I got my license and, you know, my dad was like, you got to take this show on the road, dude. We can't have this many dogs on the property. (laughs) I kind of changed my business model to private lessons, you know, depending upon what we were doing, you know, working with the clients. I work with them for three months to a year, just depending upon what their, you know, objectives were. Uh, Again, I I did uh, upland hunting. I I did train duck dogs nowhere as near to the level that, uh, that you do. Um, but, uh, I did that. I love doing that. And then as I just gained more experience, the hundreds and thousands of dogs went by rehab, aggressive dogs, all different breeds. And then, uh, in my mid twenties, I, uh, got involved in canine search and rescue. That became a huge part of my life for a better part of 10 years. And, uh, that really opened up my mind tremendously. So to, uh, just set theory and behavior and diving deep into that world and the way that that community canine community has been studying and experiencing scent on a macro scale with scent sources like human size, you know, for that are a hundred to 300 pounds versus one pound in the bush, you know, kind of thing. So that was uh, very enlightening and life-changing and definitely steered me towards the type of dogs that I desire for what I do in the grouse woods. In my early 20s, I got into setters. I got my first Llewellyn from Western PA, Lynn Hill uh, Llewellyn's. They were a well-known breeder at the time. And then once I got my first setter, uh, I, I never looked back. I had some really nice short hairs, some really nice Vishlas, uh, a couple Britneys. Um, trained a lot of pointing dogs, but that setter that I had, you know, she was above and beyond better than any other dog I had on grouse in her just her puppy season. So... Um, that made me hooked. And then, you know, the setter train kind of went off from there. Uh, 12 years ago, I bought, bought a camp property in the UP, uh, based on coming out here to look at a puppy, uh, never been here before, you know, read about it in pointing dog journal, you know, as this mythical place in the North woods, you know, and came out here. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, uh, pretty awesome. And, the breeder out here at the time, she was like, oh, yeah, I, I, you know, I know a retired biologist, you know, he's a hunting real estate guy now as well as a forester and blah, blah, blah. So I was like, oh, yeah. And I was like, I'm just picking up. I can't buy nothing. I got my whole training empire back in New York and this is what I do. Um, I was like, but I always take off hunting season and hunt like the whole season with the dogs um, in uh, the Northeast. So I was getting a dog and I was flying back there two weeks later to to um pick up the puppy and i was like hey you know what let me call this guy so i call him I was like hey i don't want to waste your time if you don't have a lot of time don't take me to show me any properties you know i just i but i love looking at real estate you know i think i think it was really awesome while i was out there for a few days i sent a letter uh, a couple weeks ago i'm coming back out you know can you oh yeah absolutely i got a handful of properties i can show i was like all right cool we'll take a ride and check yeah. it out you know so i was like First property we pull up to, like 12 grouse fly out of the, you know, from behind uh, the, the gate, you know. So we're like, 
I'm like, ooh, boy, this is, uh, you know, you know, this... you know, he, those were like farm raised oh, somehow yeah. and he yeah. planted them there. And... Yeah. Well, <laughs> he said, I don't remember exactly what he said, but he, you know, he's been a setter guy his whole life. And he said something like, oh, I'm so glad that the launcher worked, <laughs> you know, you know, so something like that. But so that was actually December 1st. It was, it was, uh, like the 15th of November when I come out to look at that pup, I came back December 1st, look at that property. And then on the 21st of December, I owned my first 70 acres in the UP. So five, five, six weeks prior to that, I had no idea I was going to be owning anything in the UP. And then just the way that things happen, you know, then like next spring, the adjacent 80 went up for sale and, you know, and my brother and I built a camp on the property. And then a couple of years later, I bought the 160 to the north you know, and which my wife wasn't too happy about. <laughs> but so then I had over 300 acres and I'd spend all of early season here and then go back to New York and hunt late season till February, weather permitting. Yeah. Um, and but pretty much after my 2013 season here, um, it was an impossibility in my mind to not move here someday. So it kind of became a 10 year plan. And we ended up doing it in eight years. So my my business has kind of tremendously transformed or evolved to training all dogs for everything under the sun to, um, you know, uh, now I'm blessed to only uh, train uh, dogs that I've bred, <laughs> sure, so, yeah. you know, and uh, it's, it's it's been great. We've been here full time now, almost four years, built a real nice kennel you know, bought an unfinished, uh, log home that we finished off. And I got two young girls, uh, six and a half and almost five, and they're living their best life here in the Northwoods, you know, so excited about that. And, uh, yeah, that's what we do. That's really cool. That was a lot of information. And so <laughs> I was going to say, like we, we've got like seven podcasts worth of like BS and over yeah. all of those yeah. things. All right, let's schedule it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. All right. So one, we're from central New York. You know, I love it when people say upstate New York and it's like the Catskills. I think the Catskills are so far that way <laughs> that I don't even think of yeah. them as upstate, but that's, that's yeah. super cool. I, from, I like, have to make sure that people realize I'm not from New York City. You know how that goes. Oh, yeah. You're oh. a New Yorker, so you get it. <laughs> 100%. Well, what's the city like? What, Syracuse? I don't know. <laughs> people yeah. ask that and it's like, well, the Amish people put a new roof on Bob's place. So I, you know, yeah. like that's very yeah. different than the city. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That's awesome. So where in the Catskill region were you? Um, I for for the sake of uh listeners being able to put a dart on a map, I, I pretty much lived uh within 10 miles my whole life of the infamous Woodstock, New York. Very good. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So most of my uh, grouse hunting and stuff was pretty much uh, um, a couple hours uh, north and west of where I did. And I hunted the Adirondacks a lot as well throughout my 20s. Very good. Yeah, so I'm, I haven't yet ventured that way to the Catskills to, to grouse hunt, but north of Syracuse and south of Syracuse is our stomping grounds, and I'm sure, sure traversed similar grounds mm -hmm. that you have, which is pretty freaking cool mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah very cool you also touched on search and rescue dogs which leads me to the question of favorable optimal and suboptimal 
scent conditions for our grouse dogs. You know, as yeah. the, the covers, what's a really good scent condition day and what's a real crappy scent condition day? Sure. Um, you know, I guess I would, you know, before I get into specifics, summarize as there's, there's lots of reasons why October is, you know, whatever normal weather is these days with our weather, pa weather patterns. But, you know, there's lots of reasons why October is like the golden month, right? That we want 12 months a year. <clears throat> you want above freezing. You know, that means a lot compared to a lot of other upland species. While there's optimal conditions for every habitat, one of the things that makes the the grouse woods great for, I mean, my kind of dog, tracking style dog, wind can change direction every 10 yards in the grouse woods. But um, generally, you know, early season to mid season, you got a canopy. So, you know, the sun isn't eating up scent. You know, um, in terms of tracking conditions and stuff, you got a forest floor not that that has a, a lot of moisture. Scent composition is based on moisture content, so you don't have typically you don't have howling wind drying out conditions. You don't have sun eating up scent, and uh, that's very conducive uh, to quality quality scent conditions. I mean, actual temperatures. I think uh, in that type of environment, probably high 30s uh to you know mid 50s i would say is awesome again there's a lot of based on being in the northeast and the northern part of the country you know we we have often high humidity uh environments so as long as the temperature isn't so high that it's going to start to affect the dog's respiration that humidity typically speaking can be a good thing uh for you know scent quality and composition yeah, we, I, I would say the same thing, you know, in the retriever world too, like super, super hot and dry, not, not good too much moisture, like a rainy day, I feel like is not good. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, what I've learned in the search and rescue, uh, seeing dogs do these things. So, you know, in search and rescue, I had, uh, I had a couple certified dogs, one in search and rescue tracking trailing um where that's a scent discriminant dog works in harness on a lead uh given a particular scent article of a particular human and regardless of how many pressure other human scents out there whether we're walking through a city or whether we're doing wilderness tracking with one person that walked over that track or many people have walked over that track um that dog has stayed committed to that particular person and then I had a cross-trained uh, wilderness area search dog for both live find and cadaver. So that's a dog that um, runs uh, with a high head and, you know, in terms of working air currents, like our, our bird dogs often um, are, are, are working air currents looking for, for birds. And uh, just, again, a much magnified, much larger magnified sense source. And their job is when they get out there and find the human, they run back to you and do an indication. My my dog was a bark indication. He'd come back and just like a, uh, well, he was a Schutzen dog too, but, um, you know, he'd be barking right at you in front of your face saying, I found him, I found him, I found him. You'd say, show me. He'd spin around and bolt back and he'd just ping pong back and forth between the subject or the victim and the handler until you're united. And then if it's training, which it is 99% of the time, you know, they get their tug toy, like a ball and a string. You play tug of war and, my like magic concoction ratio was like two thirds tug, one third retrieve for that working line shepherd brain. Cool. Um, and uh, yeah, so we had those two 
you know, uh, types of dogs, but you learn what they're capable of, which is mind blowing, but equally mind blowing. You learn how the environment and the weather can almost eliminate their ability to smell a scent source, you know? So that's one of the things like, you know, I've been on a lot of podcasts as you're probably aware. And we've talked, I've talked about this to varying degrees, but the one of the main reasons being a grouse hunter or forest hunter exclusively, you know, and we just wrapped up our season and I just, I did some tallies of my logs, you know, and uh, I hunted 106 days, 538 hours and walked, you know, almost 1100 miles this season, you know, it's strictly hunting rough grouse. So I see a lot of things when it comes to dog behavior and, and uh, I've ran a lot of different types of dogs um, solo and together and, comparing and contrasting things, but it's, it's amazing. Uh, you think about most bird dog people to whatever extent they have, uh, understanding of scent. Every, anybody that's ever trained with planted birds in a field has experienced scent traps, you know, where there's the only place that there's scent of that bird is where that bird is itself. Whether it's the sun, there's no wind, it's super humid, it's lush, green, thick vegetation, you know, that's hot and whatever the reason is, there are reasons that, um, cause it to not be available well that happens during hunting season too especially in forested habitat um, where wind constantly changes and unless you have a weather fund coming through it's not it's not usually substantial even at best so you know i would say 90 i always say 90 percent of productive grouse points by pointing dogs are usually 15 yards or less you know now late season you know like this season we had very little snow. All the soft mass was down. You know, uh, November and December was pretty bare, as bare as the Northwoods could possibly get. Now the air is thinner. Um, so scent quality isn't as good, but the ability for free flowing scent is greater because stem density is less, you know. So so you get, you know, those occasional 30-yard productive points and stuff like that. But typically, you know, for people that spend a lot of time in the woods with pointing dogs, when you walk up to a dog and that's on point and you produce a flush, let me rephrase that. If you walk up to a dog that you saw go on point and you are there quickly and you produce a flush, it's probably within 50 feet. You know, um, if you have a dog that's 100 yards away on point, well, depending upon the cover, maybe that bird was walking off that point. So you get up there to your dog that's on point and you walk 20 yards ahead and then. 30 yards ahead of you, the bird gets up and, you know, in the grouse woods, statistically, that usually means the, the bird walked off that point more sure. times than not, unless they were tucked in tight conifer or deadfall or, you know, back, back east, green briar and, you know, yep. honeysuckle, autumn olive, you know, stuff that's going to really make them feel secure. You know? Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's all really good points. I'll bring up one thing from the master national that we just ran just again to talk about that that scenting ability i was shooting live flyers out at the station super dry warm sunny day but not too hot but it it was like dust instead of dirt it that dirt turned right these dogs were all over the duck i mean within feet of the duck and they could not find it and so you're thinking about that in in hunting and just 
amazed that they could walk past that grouse and people be like, this son of a, this dog can't find a bird, can't smell anything. No, it's, it doesn't always have to be that. It could be the conditions right. you guys are in that produces a lot of bumped birds that day. And you think yeah. your dog had a crappy day and it's, I probably yeah. would feel the same way, but it has to do with the conditions big time. Hey, how about that Kent cartridge, baby? They got that fast steel 2.0. Hey, if you're not in the market for bismuth, I get it. But fast steel 2.0 is a great option for you and your dog to get more ducks in the bag. Strap them up, strap them in. Kent fast steel 2.0. Let's go. Hey, it's not only the food that fuels the truck of lone duck, but we also worry about that gut health. Sometimes the dogs get a little bit of rumbling in the tummies, and I like to help them out get all balanced with this product that Purina provides called Fortiflora. It's basically a probiotic, and you sprinkle a little bit of these pouches on the dog's food. So, for instance, if I'm driving to a hunt test and they're rattling around on the trailer, and you know, sometimes their stomachs can get a little upset from stress movement anything that four to floor can really help balance them out get them back to feeling good and get ready to run so check it out it's purina's four to flora boom you know something that uh people i always get this baffled look on their faces and maybe i'll see it on your face when i say this too but i'm Everybody, every breeder has their, you know, their, their preference, their brand of dog they want to make in their mind and different breeders have different uh, ideas sometimes. So for me, one of the things that I always tell people with all the scenting I've seen dogs do and the scenting research I've done with dogs, I've never, ever washed a dog out of my breeding program based on nose potency. To me, it's between the ears, what matters. And, you know, every dog, I've seen dogs, I have dogs with what I would consider weaker noses or hot noses. And I have dogs with what I would consider colder noses, very potent noses. And they're equally as good as grouse dogs because they still all have good enough, you know, ability to smell to handle birds. What you can't have is a weak nosed dog that runs 10 miles an hour in the grouse woods and is going to be, you know, just running too fast over running his nose. So, you know, for those that have field trial type setters and stuff that typically run faster, harder, you, those dogs definitely have to have as good of a nose as they possibly can. But a dog, like my dogs are hunting for four to six miles an hour. They just move differently through the woods. And that, uh, uh, you know, and they move in a manner that I, I find to be very effective for my style of hunting. So, you know, I, I've just, I've never, I've never washed a dog out, um, based on, you know, uh, nose potency before. So sure. what I, what I've seen, you know, one of the search and rescue tests or five tests for the New York state, uh, Federation of search and rescue teams that you had pass back when I was doing it and, uh, for the, uh, wilderness area search dog. And one of them was the heavy brush test which in New York basically means you find 30 acres of mountain laurel. And it was a two-part test. One, see how your dog works with you in heavy brush and locate a subject. And two, um, how the handler could navigate mountain laurel, you know, with a map and compass and know where they are, you know? So 
So sometimes, depending upon the weather conditions, whether it was sunny, whether it was raining, you know, uh, whether you had a weather front come through and you actually had a consistent wind, but you've been through Mount Laurel many times, I'm sure. And you know that that stuff is gnarly. There's a lot of vegetation that's going to impede scent movement. Um, so there were many, many times on many heavy brush tests um, that I was observed and that I was in with my dog where the human saw the person before the dog ever smelt them, yeah. you know, um, because, and sometimes we would like, like walk right by like, Oh my God, I can't believe he's not getting. And like the dog has to do the indication. Like I described, you know, running back and forth indicate or else like you fail. So, you know, now in a real search and rescue mission, we found the person I found the person, the dog did in that situation, you know, but it just goes to show here. This is summertime. Here's a 200 pound half naked man shedding a hundred dense skid cells a minute has been out there for three hours. Yeah. And my dog is 20 feet away, has a very good nose and doesn't smell the human. So now I, you know, so after years and years of seeing those types of things happen, then I think about, okay, now I have my dog, my bird dog looking for a one pound bird and super dense understory, yeah. you know, and you think how many birds that, you know, can go undetected, you know, and, you know, it's true of all, up, all upland species. I mean, yeah, I think grouse is king. I'm a grouse guy. I'm the romantic grouse hunter, like everybody else, but you know, every species is king of its own environment. Right. So, you know, these guys know when to hold and they know when to go, you know, and, uh, that's, a that's something that was real eye-opening. On the flip side, we could have a 40-acre scent pool of some hunter that's strung up, bringing the colder air and the humidity and spreading it all out. And it's kind of like up on a hillside going down into a bowl along a row of hemlocks near a creek, you know, and you got a 40-acre scent pool and you have to define the edges of that scent pool so you can grid it with your dog, you know? Sure. Now, I never see scent pools anywhere near that with one pound birds that roost overnight, but just case in point, like those are the extreme differences in what scent can do based on environment. But again, applying it to bird dogs, what was most amazing again, was these large scent sources with certain scent conditions in certain environment types that the dog cannot smell a 200 pound human being, right. you know? And that's what I've, I feel I've brought most into my perspective and my approach of, um, dog selection and hunting style um, and training style for uh, grouse dogs for me personally. What I want to bring this home to, because there's a couple things that you said in that discussion, your line of setters that you've developed over the years is known for their tracking ability. That's how I like to hunt too. That's how my dog is. Kevin's dog is a little bit bigger running. And so it's a two-part question can you take a bigger running dog and bring them back in? And how do you do that? Like reining that bigger running dog in, do you do it in training? Do you do it while you're working the dog hunting type of thing? And then how do you determine, like, is your dog a tracking dog? How would someone know the difference? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. So, um, all great questions. And I'm sure you'll appreciate some of the answer answers to this being a training yourself. I say this a lot. Um, you know, I always say like training is crucial. Um, but I always feel that, uh, you know, I, I've worked with over 4,500 dogs in my life. I've produced, you know, just about 400 setters, uh, you know, I've brought up 107 
setters and counting now through their first season. I feel like a dog, a dog's presentation is 80% genetics and 20% environment. But if somebody says you got a 20% chance of dying, you're pretty scared, right? So, so that, that, that 20% can still make you or break you, right? Just because a dog is born very gifted doesn't mean that it's automatically gonna, you know, be the, an Olympian, right? So, um, so something that, uh, I, I say often is, and this is something that I I'm sure you can appreciate as a breeder and a trainer. I'm always looking for the hundred hour dog, not the 300 hour dog, you know, as, as the breeder and a dog that I want to own. Right. You know, so uh, a dog that can do the job to, uh, to the best of a dog's ability within that utility. And it takes half as much or, or a third as much time based on the dog's ability is every trainer and breeder's dream to have, right? It makes your job easier. And it's, again, it's why at this point in time, I only train dogs that I breed because they're, they're easy for me, you know, and I can, I can make them a hunt ready dog in a month. If they're, you know, four and a half to five months old, you know, I can, I can get them ready in a month, you know, and they're not going to be, you know, uh, the best dog in the world at six months old, but they're hunt ready. They know everything they got to do. They're ready to go. You know, I can walk the owners through everything and, you know, they can go have a productive grouse season. By the end of that first season, they feel really good about the dog that they have usually, you know? So, um, so I, I think genetics is a huge part of it. Now to answer your question, like, like Kevin's dog is a, you know, naturally a bolder, bigger running independent dog probably what I would call a true style dog, you know, um, you know, so, uh, and for your listeners, if they haven't heard me on podcast before in a nutshell, I I've always kind of broken the style of a pointing dog down into two different types, uh, a true dog, which I consider a dog that runs with a higher head prior to the shot, strictly, um, trying to locate uh, game, uh, via air scent, the scent cone. Okay. Um, after the shot, I've seen plenty of true dogs put their nose to the ground to look for a wounded game. Um, but never really just before, um, maybe if the dog went on point, you get up to it. It's been a little while. You try to produce a flush. Um, you can't, and then the dog will hot track because literally the trail is seconds old. It might not even be on the ground yet. You know, um, some of that odor. And so a true dog could follow that, but you're never going to see a true dog, you know, be in search mode, stick its nose to the ground, stop, go on point, wait for you to get there. You get up there and then you kind of leapfrog up this track with multiple points or sets out of your dog. And then you both kind of arrive at the bird together. And that, that latter description is what I refer to as tracking dogs. Um, and, uh, at this point in time, my, my, my own program, that that's all I, that's all I have. But half the dogs I've owned, you know, have been both because in this country, we very much favor true dogs, you know, in terms of all our testing models for pointing dogs, you know, whether it be NAVDA, AKC, UKC, American Field, you know, NASTRA, they're all based on a point produces a flush, you know, thumbs up, doesn't, thumbs down, right? So um, very different than almost every other country in the world um, in terms of they do they do value a dog that does have range and and obviously points birds, um, but they value a dog that can um, uh, follow a trail as well. So it's uh, uh, two very different types of dogs. 
um, training about them can go differently, but going back to Kevin's dog or dogs like that, that might run bigger. Can you make that dog a, a closer working dog and maybe go from hunting eight to 11 miles an hour to hunting, you know, four to six and a half miles an hour. I guess the shortest answer is yes, but I, I can say I, I only take dogs in that I, that I breed at this point, but I do private lessons for anybody that wants to come here and not leave their dog here, you know? So that might be kind of like, I'll have a session with them for like two, three hours or a couple sessions over a couple of days. And then they'll go back to wherever and they'll do, you know, their own training and practice. Um, and a lot of those dogs, um, are setters and a lot of them are of, uh, American field trial background. Um, and they are the eight to 12 mile an hour dogs in the grouse woods and much more independent. You know, they're, you know, they work, they work ahead of you, but they might work, you know, as little as a hundred to as much as 300 yards ahead of you. They're very independent. Um, so, uh, I've taken dogs like that with very dedicated owners that have the time to do it themselves. Um, and taken those 10 mile an hour dogs and have made them like seven mile an hour dogs that are now 60 yard dogs based on hunt strategy and handling, you know, it's a little bumping <laughs> on the collar and, you know, light whistling and stuff like that to just rein them in. Um, yeah. Also, one of the things that I teach my first year dogs, like, so my first year dogs, I hunt very, very differently than my, my two year dogs and older, my first year dogs. So there's a teamwork aspect that has to be, you know, it's a team sport, right? There's no, I am pack. So when we're handling the dogs, my dogs learn that the way they move me forward is by coming back to me. It's a very common thing I do. I have this nice seven acre overgrown gravel pit that is part of my training property. And I'll walk out there, you know, with my field trial dog, you know, that I'm training with the guy and we cut them loose and they want to start walking like right away, you know? And I just say, Oh no, no, just stand here. <clears throat> like, what are we doing? I was like, well, we're seeing how much your dog cares about you, you know? So, you know, so I'm just waiting to see what, what your dogs, what kind of experience your dog's looking to anticipate from this outing, you know? And if it is not with you and you're here to see me, so I assume you want it to be with you, you know, um, you know, we got to change some things. And, you know, so then we start with, you know, you, you staying in one spot, you know, and the dog, you know, every time the dog gets beyond now in open country, I'll let them go more than 40 yards, you know, um, in a gravel pit, you know, but just again, where you can see them. And if you're using, um, you know, if you're using remote collars, you know, you want to be able to see everything that's going on to know, you know, that the dog is, knows how it's supposed to respond and timing and all that stuff. Right. So, um, so we start with that. And once the dog kind of sees, and, you know, a lot of dogs, will, you know, they might even stop hunting, you know, uh, if they, if they're a couple of years old, you know, and they, this is what they've always done. And they'll, because they'll be confused. They'll be like, well, I, I guess you don't want me to go do what I was born to do, you know? And, uh, and, you know, they, they need to, the retraction, you know, obviously when they're, when they're not doing anything wrong, um, you don't communicate, you know, those boundaries to them, you know, and the, so the, they learn deductively, you know, dogs are deductive learners. So, you know, when the, when the dog starts to, hasn't, hasn't had any communication or thumbs on handling, you know, for a few minutes or whatnot, and the, start dog starts to get back into its old brain a little bit and it gets out there and confident. And then, you know, 
um, I, I, I walk another hundred yards and I'm stopped again, you know, and the dog's looking around and searching and it gets beyond my desired distance. You know, um, I tone him in for recall and recall is not a quote unquote check-in to me. You know, to me, a check-in is when a dog voluntarily comes all the way back where I can touch it. Not when it pops out on a logging trail, 50 yards ahead of me, and we look at each other and give each other a thumbs up. To me, that's not a check-in, you know, because our, our dogs in the woods get so prone and I'm, I'm sure this happens in, in open country too with people, but it definitely happens. I've hunted with hundreds and hundreds of people in the grouse woods. I mean, you know, people just walk, it's good habitat and they just walk, you know, and I'm a fast paced hunter anyway, that's hunted with me with all my older dogs that, you know, you know, make sure you stretch before you come with me because we're, we're hauling butt through the woods with how I work. But those first year dog, like they, they have to have a hunting system. It's not just throw a great dog in the ground. It looks like good habitat. And let's, let's go see what we find. I, that's not how I approach things. I, I want the dog to be very connected to me. There has to be that synergy. Uh, I mean, I, I live to grouse hunt, but I would give it all up tomorrow if I didn't do it with a dog. And I've had those great true dogs that are out 70 yards, nine and a half out of 10 times that they go on point. There's a bird there. Um, but I still feel like I'm running to a point. I don't feel like it's a team. I don't feel that that dog, it might have a lot of point, be very cautious, handle all of its birds super well. Um, but it's not a dog that hunts for the gun. To me, it, you define a dog that hunts for the gun, but a dog that wants to be with the gun, you know, and uh, that's uh I think a lot of people confuse hunting for the gun and a dog that has a lot of point. Um, yeah, you know, a lot of the times when we're talking setters, but I mean, those are some cliff notes or bullet points, you know, in terms of some of the, some of the aspects of training integration on your, you know, kind of like taming the Hulk, if you will. Yeah, 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 absolutely. What is your process? You're going to take a puppy from this litter that you're having. Uh, you're really excited about it it's eight weeks old. What are you doing? You know, you had mentioned that you bring in dogs as young as four and a half, five months old and get them ready in, in a quick amount of time. If you're going to raise it and it's going to be your next dog, what are you doing eight weeks to next October? Mm -hmm. <laughs> All right. Well, again, it might be cliff notes here. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, the phone, the battery on my phone will go dead if we've got to explain all of that. But, um, so I guess uh, uh, eight weeks old uh, things we're we're looking at bonding. Um, uh, you know now that now the dog's going to be separated from its litter mates. You know pretty much all the time uh, in my life, it's going to be surrounded by you know another eight to ten older dogs. So there's uh, that's, there's pack integration and stuff. And I think most serious hunters have multiple dogs. Um, the name of the game and one of the biggest mistakes I see people make is they sometimes it's convenience and sometimes it's belief that they think that the that the puppy is going to learn everything it needs to learn from the older dogs and i i personally don't believe that at all if you have a well-bred dog i think the worst thing you can do is work it around lots of other dogs when it's really young for distraction purposes when it's at a certain point sure and depending upon what the application is but i think the worst thing that you can do um with a pup is always have it with the older dogs while you're trying to train that pup because they're going to take leads off of the other dogs. And let's face it, these dogs have been bred for one to 200 years to find and point birds, <laughs> you know? So, um, I can, you can go out, you're going to go out there with a puppy, put it on pigeons in the launcher and stuff like that. 
and it's going to point them, you know, so, and it's going to find them and it's going to point them. So what is the older dog actually teaching the younger dog in reality? What is it really doing? Nothing, nothing. nothing. It becomes a distraction and it's pulling, it's pulling that puppy away from you. Um, right. And I don't want that. I, I want a very human centric pup um, to promote this genetically wired close to medium range dog. I need it to be with me, not with the other dog. So it's all of my training with those first year dogs are one-on-one with me. I got the rest of the dog's life to, to hunt it with other dogs if I want, you know, to do all these other things, you know, um, not say I won't use the other dogs in an obedience training setting as distractions for higher grade level training. But, uh, in terms of it's work, it's utility, it's me and that puppy. I need to create a bubble around me and that puppy. And the more links in the chain, whether it's obedience, retrieving, or it's pointing, the more links in the chain in the training process you make, the less backslippage you have in the training process, in my experience with anything with dogs. So, you know, um, so at eight weeks old, uh, I'm focusing a lot on retrieving. I care just as much about after the shot work as I do before the shot work. That's super important to me. Um, you know, I do have setters. Setters can be amazing retrievers. Uh, and sometimes it needs to be finessed and sometimes it really needs to be trained. Um, just depends on the line of dogs, the individual dog. I would comfortably say that probably 80% or more of my pups when raised the way that I instruct my puppy people to do it, they end up being at minimum good retrievers. Uh, my dogs that I have here, they all retrieve exceptionally well. They're, they're eager to get feathers in their mouth. Um, and so I start off with like, uh, paint rollers, rolled up rags, you know, when they're eight weeks old contained areas, you know, uh, you know, void distraction as much as you can. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, not a lot of time. I'm more about possession with bird dogs than the actual retrieving process. Um, one of the things that's most important is for the dog to want to possess that item and not feel like it's going to be taken away. So. For me, with the retrieving, you know, my puppies, I might do three to four retrieves maximum in a enclosed rectangular um, 10 foot long area, because the majority of the time that puppy is holding that object in my embrace while I'm just giving it calm physical praise and telling how wonderful it is. And it's just like, you know, having like a slow 4th of July going on in its mind, you know, and and basking in that. And so I, I focus on that tremendously. I do that with the pups. Um, and then we gradually on the retrieving front, we gradually, uh, uh, expand to other objects, you know, working our way up to like doke and dummies. Uh, and then I kind of, I like to hold off, like, uh, I'll put grouse wings. I'll, I'll gorilla tape, uh, grouse wings to, um, depending upon the size of the pup, uh, uh, quail, dove or chucker size doke and dummies um usually wait until august so i have enough grouse wings to uh to last freshly to the season kind of sure. thing because yep. depends on the pup um with setters anyway you know like sometimes uh you don't get them it's hard to get a pup interested until you find whatever that high value is right so lots of times when they're little pups while the rag and the paint roller the mini paint rollers work very well you know, they want something that's soft. They don't want something that's hard that they're going to have to like bite hard on. And then when you start talking about like the teething phase and stuff, these hard objects and stuff can be, 
can uh, do can hinder more than help uh, sometimes. So I like, you know, I'll go to like stuffed animals, you know, and stuff like that, you know, that they can easily pick up. The whole thing is I want them to have a clean grab. And, and as soon as they got that clean grab, I can praise them to come back to me, you know? So there's no, I want to minimize um, the fumbling, you know, but I want to minimize it in training environment setup, not by having to train it in a young dog like that, you know? So it's just routine and habit. Um, And then for me, where I feel most of my people can lose the the momentum is once they go outside and they're not in the fenced in area anymore, you know, and the puppy may or may not go out and get it. And like people just don't backtrack a little bit and say, okay, what can I do to make, make this environment? How was I successful with what and how was I successful in the previous grade level, the lower step, you know? And uh, you know, so you just can't be shooting from the hip like that, whether it's with a check cord you know, yeah. or whether you need to like take that same baby gate stuff, but elongate along like your outside fence, you know, and make like an alleyway or something like you got to just find the middle ground. And until your dog is with it um, and consistent, you, you can't do it. And uh, some setters, you know, uh, I mean, my dogs, I could throw it 10 times, 20 times in a row, and they're going to go get whatever I ask them to get and they'll bring it back. Um, but some setters, I, I have had one of the best true style grouse dogs I ever had named Stella, um, who coincidentally is now owned by the guy that, uh, the retired biologist that sold me my camp property, um, uh, her retirement home. Uh, she, uh, I could never get that dog and I, I'm not, you know, uh, I heard you and Jeremy talk on that podcast, uh, with Nick and, uh, that was a fun I, I one. Yeah, that was a good one. Um, so uh, I'm not a force fetch guy. I think there are certain dogs that uh, are by design able to tolerate them. My dogs are super, super soft dogs. You know, they're yeah. gonna call you. They're gonna call you an a hole. You know, if like you know you apply wrong pressure and in the world of force fetch, with a lot of my dogs vibrate might be too much pressure. So somebody that has a lot of experience like you, you might be able to take this soft dog and and work it. But in terms of uh, the average person trying to you know, force break these types of dogs. Uh, you, you have to be really intuitive, have a lot of experience and, and make sure you don't screw them up. I'll stop here real quick on that. Yeah, sure. I probably wouldn't be force fetching my next setter. I'd probably go <clears throat> the, we talked about this yesterday. We did. Yeah. We talked about this whole thing yesterday. I would do Wild. what, like the British style of old, I would build retrieve. Sure. Like my setter doesn't retrieve this mm-hmm. almost seven has no retrieve drive doesn't like to swim all she wants to do is go and find birds and she'll refind them most of the time or you know it's over there and i find it too and we're off and running again but the next one i wanted to retrieve for me but because of their demeanor and i I just don't feel like i have to right yeah Um, yeah I'm not yeah, trying to win anything. I don't think it's going to help or hurt. I, I don't think it's going to help me enough to do it. So, but I would make it a uh, a gentle hold with maybe some amount of like baby. Pre- I mean, it's just gonna. I'm gonna finesse it. I'm a super busy busy guy like you. I I you know I've been on a lot of podcasts. I don't really listen to many. Once in a while, like yeah, when Nick uh, puts one up that. Uh, you know, the, the topic is force fetch and he names it trainer fights. Then I, that, that grabbed my attention. So that was good marketing on Nick's behalf. 
yeah, for that episode. Weird. So I listened to that and I got Jeremy on my podcast after that. Um, but uh, in any event, before I came on, she was like, oh, maybe I should find out something about Bob. Right. So I scroll through your Instagram and stuff, watching just a couple of your videos. But to your point for this particular uh, conversation piece, you know, you had a post there that, you know, was genuinely accurate in that, you know, you have to take the And I say this a lot myself. You have to look at the dog in front of you. Right. Because they're individuals. And um uh, you know, in your world of, of high performance retrievers, you know, those dogs are, can probably, you know, handle a lot of pressure, you know, um, uh, again, depends on the dog, yep, of course, exactly. you know, but I can tell you, there's a lot more field trial bred Labradors. I can handle pressure than paint river setters. I can handle pressure, you know? Um, yeah. um <laughs> so, so, I mean, I actually have in my sales contracts, you know, like no force fetching, with these dogs, yeah. no flank collars, you know, because just in the wrong hands and the type of dog that they are, they're, they're, they're not going to get the memo the way that you want them to get the memo more times than not. But, uh, you know, it, it can be done, but with these dogs, you know, I was going to say about Stella, she's a dog that, and I do everything I can, you know, semantics, I guess, are we going to call this a trained retrieve or a natural retrieve? Right. I mean, I guess natural retrieve, you never do anything to encourage anything. You just throw something, they go get it, bring it back. Of course, that's natural. These puppies do that, but as you add environmental influences, they you know, uh, they may or may not. So right. now I, I don't, I don't train a hold. I, I don't do force fetch. I don't do anything with the collar at all ever when it comes to retrieving. Um, I just, I create as many links in the chain as possible to put them into positions to succeed. And I make the, I, I, Again, I, I talked about encouraging that possession and, yeah. you know, get them used to the feathers with the with the wings and grouse compared to like pheasants and maybe some other upland species that I'm, I'm not familiar with with my own dogs. Grouse, like you shoot a grouse and it's like early season and the dog's got a lot of foam in its mouth, like half the feathers come off that grouse and it's yep. in the dog's mouth. So that's that's really bad for young dogs to experience. <laughs> So, you know, so I'll do, I'll do, and pigeons hold their feathers good too. Um, I'm a fourth generation pigeon racer in my family, so I really don't like to shoot pigeons, but, um, but I'll shoot, I'll shoot a couple, you know, just before the season starts for the dog or just before the puppy's going home. Um, and uh, again, I have the grouse wings. I might hold on to a couple frozen grouse, you know, things just to, again, promote the desire to have feathers rather than the distaste to have feathers in the mouth. But this dog, Stella, quickly, I could never get that dog to retrieve a dummy ever. She had no interest. She'd like run halfway out. Nah, no, thank you. I shot over 200 grouse over that, that dog, lots of woodcock in her life. And that dog never, ever did not retrieve a wild bird. All right. Check out loneduckoutfitters.com. We've got gear. We've got upcoming breedings. You can see all the dogs in our breeding program. If you're interested in getting yourself into a lone duck dog, this is where you can learn more. Check it out at loneduckoutfitters.com. So it depends on the dog, but something uh, going back to the, the retriever training track. One other thing I would say, I guess, where we can talk about obedience and just the pointing work Um you know, a lot of people come in, you know, cause they see my puppies like back and forth, back and forth, like, like a field trial out back and forth, back yeah. and forth, you know? And I'm like, all right, well, that's me. And these are all the links in the chain. And I have a video series that they have to follow. And, you know, you know, the, the, the best intentioned owners in the world just still have a hard time following directions, <laughs> you know? So, 
So that happens sometimes. So, and every dog is different. I'm like, oh, I can only get in the retrieve three times in a row or four times in a row. And my, my answer is always the same. Well, how many birds are you going to shoot at once? You know, uh, we're talking grouse hunting, you know, you're lucky if you get one. Right. So, um, I was like, just dial it back a little bit. You know, if you can get your puppy today to go out reliably, pick up a dummy one time, come back and hold on to it while you praise it. Cool. Try it again in a half hour, you know, do one or two, you know, it's not a race. You know, I mean, I work on it every day with the dogs to get them to progress. And I have a dog, a type of dog that I know super well, that I can progress pretty quickly without too many hiccups um, based on how, how I handle them. But despite how quickly I can get, like, as I mentioned, a five or six month old puppy to be hunt ready and, uh, and operational, yeah. you know, um, those, uh, I, I don't get to that point without making sure that I've got all my checks and balances, you know, up to that point, you know? Yeah. So it's important to, you know, you have to look at, uh, you know, people that are training their own dogs and they might be good handlers and they might be able to trade a good training environment. But if you train your dog maybe one night a week after work and on the weekend, like you can't compare that to the dogs you're training and, and working with them six days a week. You know, right. you, you can't compare that, right? So people just need to, as handlers, owners need to grasp the understanding of the type of experience, both the quality and quantity of experience that their puppies are having, you know? Um, and I, I, that happens a lot with retrieving, particularly like if there's one thing that I feel, um, falls apart, you know, depending upon the age of the pup. So I tell everybody like they pu- take the pup was like, Oh yeah, it's April born pup. Oh yeah, sure. We can have it in for the month of August, you know, get it ready for the season. I was like, so the next two months I need, I need you to focus on retrieving because if there's one thing that they're not going to be successful with here in this environment, with 10 other dogs and pigeons and all these smells and, you know, yeah, they're going to be happy and comfortable, but they're going to be like at six flags, great adventure, you know, and I don't force fetch and these dogs don't need force fetch, but what they do need is just for you to nurture that instinct that you were experiencing at eight weeks old. So if you do that, we'll have no problems. If you don't do that, well, then now we're starting to get into like a formally trained retrieve, you know, that's going to be required of that, of that dog, you know, and again, they might not retrieve anything and then might retrieve every bird. You're leaving it up to the dog entirely in that situation. And I'm still leaving it up to the dog entirely in that situation. Just over the years, if, if I, I don't have those dogs anymore, but if I had that kind of dog, I, I simply wouldn't breed it, you know, and it's just, it's again, after the shot, you know, I want a dog that I can easily set up learning scenarios. You know, one of the, one of my dog yards, the pasture kind of like has a little hill in it, you know, so I can do straight up visual retrieves and I can work on holding the collar and throwing it just a little bit over that hill, you know, so it starts a blind retrieve for the search and I can expand the dog's brain that way. And so we get into all that kind of stuff just before the season starts, you know? Um, So it's seeking it, you know, and knowing that has to work for it. And it's, it's learning to trust that when I say fetch your dead bird, there is one there, you know? Um, and, uh, that's all part of learning, you know, that's not innate, that's learning. Um, but it's, it, it's desire to do that comes from all that possession work that I was doing, you know, when it was younger. Um, yeah. but it is, I do feel that retrieving 
at least with um, uh, pointing breeds that whose primary original function was not retrieving. In my experience, I, I do feel that uh, while it can be super strong and super strong with my dogs, um, if not encouraged properly, it's probably one of the more fragile traits that you can see in, in some pointing dogs, you know? Yeah, I'd agree. How would you move forward? Now, let's say we're at four or five months old. We've got a little bit of retrieve drive. We've got adventurous and outgoing and confident, you know, four and a half, five month old puppy. Are you developing, how are you going to start that obedience without diminishing any search? You know, you made a comment earlier about allowing a dog to run and wait and come back to you to check in. Um, how, yeah. how are you molding sure. that dog to work with you at that yeah. young age? Sure. So I, I, I'm a big believer in, in uh, isolating various utilities. So let's just call retrieving a utility, um, seeking and pointing birds a utility and obedience a utility. I isolate all of those. I do not glob them together until the dog is proficient to a solid elementary level, you know, with each one of those. So for example, so I'm working with the retrieve, like I mentioned, eight weeks and up kind of on the general projection that I, you know, a trajectory that I described. Obedience. Um, I do not introduce formal obedience until they're four months old for, for my dogs. And in general, I mean, when I was training 40 dogs a week, um, I just found that uh, what I could teach a 16-week-old pup, it, what I could teach an eight-week-old puppy to the span of time of 16-week-old puppy, I could teach, I could teach a 16-week-old puppy that in 10 minutes. Yeah. Okay. So now I'm not saying that people absolutely should not teach a dog obedience commands and familiarize them and make it a positive experience, a positive reinforcement, all that. So I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that you better darn well be good at it because the margin of error is far greater between eight to 16 weeks and 16 weeks plus. Your dog's going to rebound better. It's it's comprehension of the world, your relationship with the dog. You know, there's lots of ways to set boundaries and not do obedience work with your puppies, you know? So, um, so for me, sit, stay, come, heal, woe. I teach, I start introducing all the same day but between 15 to 17 weeks of age. Prior to that, um, again, it's bonding, it's the retrieving. Um, I'll, I'll do everything with me in communication on hunts is kissing sounds. I call it my kissing method. And uh, so, you know, I'll do, I'll do uh, I call it passive command response, right? So I'm not ever forcing the dog to do it. I'm just trying, again, to create an environment where the dog wants to do it, right? It's the best show in town. So my dogs are as food motivated as la classic Labradors. And I mean, I select for that food drive to the point where it scares my clients, you know, and, and like don't base how much the dog needs to eat based on his appetite, you know? So, um, you know, they muzzle punch the bottom of their food bowls, you know, and it makes puppy communication and training super easy in that young, immature age where like their reasoning and understanding of the world is so limited, you know? So, sure. You know, I started in eight weeks, I can, and be like, huh, what's that? And then I give them a piece of kibble, like, oh, this is awesome, you know? And then so I can just like, they can be out in the yard. They're 30 feet away, 30 yards away. I make the kissing sounds. I walk backwards a little bit. I bend down on their level and they get a single piece of kibble, you know? Crate games, you know? Kennel up, fire one piece of kibble in there, you know? And 
close the door a little bit, make them wait in there, open up door, close the door, make them wait, you know, can introduce the well a little bit there, you know? So just little things like that. They're passive. There's nothing. It's not really any pressure anywhere. You There's know, nothing major. It's just development and having fun and food motivated. Yeah. So on an obedience level, nothing formally gets introduced where if they don't do it, I, I make them do it, you know, um, until they're 16 weeks old. Okay. Um, and, and again, with this temperament, a dog that I have, it's super, it's super easy. Like they're gonna, like they got, I got a great relationship with them. You know, the first couple sessions, you know, you might, you might look like you, uh, you know, they feel like you maybe stole their best friend, you know, that they, they, they can have like a, a pretty depressed look, you know, and I'm walking around, like I just chewed, you know, swallowed 10 Prozac pills, you know, you know, fake it till you make it, you know, the dog at best can model your behavior in the environment. So, you know, uh, and then after like two or three, five minute sessions of just running through introducing all of those things and they're getting food dispensed, you know, uh, throughout when they're doing well, um, you know, it's, it's smart, soft dogs, you know, they're like, cool. Okay. I, I got it. This is easy stuff. This is basic obedience. Right. Yeah. So I start that process then now, as far as the bird work, it depends on the time of year when the dog is born. <laughs> you know, as to how much snows on the ground. Sure. Uh, I mean, I, I personally, for my own personal grouse dogs, I like for assessing them for breeding purposes. I like them to be born between November and uh, April or March. Um, that's really ideal for North Country grouse dogs and assessment. Um, so they're they're a nice age. You know, while I'll have, I've shot plenty of well handled grouse over five month old puppies in October. I would much more love and prefer to be doing it over nine to 10 month old dogs. There, those, that's a huge difference uh, in development. Absolutely. So, you know, so I, so I like, I like to see that. So like, I got a dog, you know, you can't control when mother nature happens. Right. So I have a outstanding pup now it was born June 30th. You know, she didn't start her grass season until November 1st. So she's working wily late birds. She did awesome. Awesome. Over 150 grouse points. I shot over a dozen grouse over her. But um, if she doesn't change at all, she'll make the cut. But she's too young. Like, there's too much to develop in that dog, for better or worse yet, yeah. uh, for my liking. So next season is her assessment season, you know. Gotcha. Uh, but normally I like – so she was like a fully operational grouse dog and did amazing. Um, but she's there's just too much natural development that I have nothing to do with yet that has to happen in that dog to assess that, you know. So – so, but all things being equal, you know, uh, if there is no snow on the ground, um, and I have a, a puppy as young as, uh, nine weeks old and I'm the pigeon guy, you know, I mean, I got over a hundred pigeons. I love it. Uh, and, uh, you know, a dozen launchers, you know, so, um, I'll start with the, the, uh, actually I start with manual foot traps, um, the wire baskets. So I'll put them out there and. You know, I, I always I emphasize like in my puppy training uh, series that is nothing, uh, you know, on a cinematic level uh, outstanding, but uh, it's content rich. As I like to say for my puppy people, I'm like, however long it's, they're just unedited little training videos and they have a talking headpiece at the start. So they can kind of like progress through this and watch five or six of puppies that I'm handling and going through this and then they can do it with their puppy. But those videos are only as long as what they're watching, you know, which is only five minutes. All right. You know, I'm not out there for 30 minutes with a nine week old or even a 16 week old, you know? Um, 
There's um, I'm top heavy with bird contacts until the dog is showing and understanding and proficiency. And then I back off bird contacts and increase nose time. So you keep that work ethic and drive going in that capacity. So, um, you know, I, I'll, I'll take a puppy and I'll literally have them out there for two to three minutes and they'll have three or four uh, manual float trap wire basket bird contacts. So they're getting reps quick at finding it. So one of the, all right. So let's, as you're saying the foot traps, the foot trap, if the dog doesn't point, it can go take that bird out. How are you holding that dog back? You know what I'm saying? How are you trying to set that up? Yeah. So, uh, so keep in mind again, we're talking, I mean, it might be an older dog. Okay. But if a dog wants to, if a dog wants to take a bird out, um, just I'll answer your question then kind of go back to the chronology of sure. what I do. Um, if a dog wants to take a bird out, it's probably going to be okay with having your lawn, a launcher bird on the, on the softest release setting. Okay. Yes. So if a bird, if a dog, if a puppy is doing that, um, then it's, uh, it's time to go to launchers, but I'm not on manual foot traps long. I'm only on manual foot traps because what I don't want to do is scare the puppy with a launcher. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, and they, and they have this, you know, you know, uh, for, Again, 200 years, this dog's been selected to point birds, but still, you take that puppy out to the training field the first time, they have no idea why they're out there. They're sure. looking at butterflies, grasshoppers, jumping up on you. They, they don't know what's going on, right? So, so again, the dog, has to, the dog has to show that it's purpose-driven. I don't care if it's pointing the birds or not. Um, and actually, when it, when it, and then if it's a nine-week-old puppy, you know, they're not knocking over you know, a gun dog supply, heavy wire basket trap, you know? Right. Um, so uh as soon as they get up there whether they point it or they go up to it and they're looking at it like it's a snake or something with their head bobbing in and out i i never do the tip up i always pick the, the bird up manually with my hand from under the trap yeah. i have the puppy smell it and i do it now if the puppy's pointing it from a distance i still grab the bird so i can throw it far away from the puppy so the puppy there's no chance i'm all about i'm all about worst case scenarios and preventing them you know so yeah. um so that's that's what I would do. And then with my pups, it's it's sometimes as little as five birds to as many as 20 birds uh in that age group that we're talking, that where as soon as I see them consistently, and I try to set them up, you know, in a nice field where there is wind available and work them in the wind and all that kind of stuff. Um, as soon as I see them consistently looking like they're seeking out birds and they're consistently like scenting the bird from like 10 feet away or more. Whether they're pointing it or they're going in to take the bird out, that's the time I switch in the launchers. So that could be on their sixth bird. It could be on their 30th bird. It just depends on the puppy as to when those switches are going to flip. Yep. Um, and then once we're on launchers, we're on launchers, you know, till the hunting season. And again, I have a lot of launchers. So I, now I can take a, a puppy out, and whatever, let's just say they're 10 weeks old to 12 weeks old, and we're, we progress to launchers. Um, these are nature walks. There is zero zero command structures the only thing i might do if the puppy decides I and mean, my dogs usually are still bootlicking at that age um but if uh if the puppy decides to go rogue and want to run across field i'll give a kissing sounds and if it comes back i'll dispense a single piece of kibble um i do try to avoid that because my dogs are food motivated and then it just becomes about whatever's in kyle's pocket you know right. if they're not if they're not search driven yet um but i i have that in my arsenal of limited tools in my toolbox at that point, you know? So, 
So we're out there just going on nature walks, five minute nature walks, finding five or six birds, you know? So connect those synapses are firing, connecting the dots. This is why I'm out here. This is what happens. Um, and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll argue to the death that a launcher pigeon is the best training bird for a pointing dog. You know, I mean, it's just, you know, if, if you, uh, if, if that remote is in the right person's hands, you can make it act like a wild bird, you know, any, any way you want, you know? So, uh, whereas like a woodcock, it's a wild bird. They're a cool bird. I have a lot of respect for them. Um, I, I don't like them for puppies cause they allow for really bad behavior, you know? So can get really close. Yeah. Yeah. So, and grouse don't usually allow that, you know? So yeah. like I was saying earlier, um, once the puppy starts to point and for me, it's about eking out seconds, you know, like I'm not, my clients always send me these videos, you know, of like, Oh my God, look at this, look at this 10 week old puppy pointing and the, and I'm watching it. And the whole time I'm screaming at my phone, push the button, push <laughs> the button, you know, like they're just there. <clears throat> and we have, but I'm guilty of, especially in this day and age where everybody's recording everything on their phones, myself included, right? It's like you, sometimes you get caught up in watching the movie rather than being the handler. So some of the worst things that you can do for your inexperienced handling is carry around your phone and record it. You know, it's just, it makes, it always makes you a lesser handler, never a better handler. Somebody else recording you, that's a whole nother story, you know, right. but you, you handling your camera, bad idea. Um, so in any event, uh, we progress to the point where, you know, we're eking out seconds um, uh, to build it. For me, the way you promote the pointing instinct in a dog is not waiting until it stops pointing and goes for broke, you know, but, uh, you know, it's anticipate, it smells a bird, a couple seconds, you pop the bird, you know, that's a repeated experience and you just keep on exponentially increasing the time, but the dog's mindset is settled in, the anticipation of a bird flushing while it's on point. Yeah. Not that it's got to go take Make out it. that bird to get in the air yeah. and then having to then, Whoa, you know, and stuff like that. Now I, so this is all happening, you know, we'll say nine, 10 weeks old, right on up through progressing with that, reducing the number of birds, increasing nose time. So the dog gets to has to work for the birds, you know? Um, and then I'm setting up based on my, again, uh, scent theory and behavior education, you know, there's, uh, different types of situations, you know, we migrate into the grouse woods and working with elevated birds and there for a period of time and working with old scent and new scent and stuff like that with where birds were and pulling it up and running other dogs over those areas and, you know, stuff like that, learning your dog's nose potencies based on that, you know, and whatnot. Um, but, uh, then, when the dog is proficient and pointing, looking really good for a young dog. Um, now we get to the point where, and usually this, <clears throat> this tends to be, uh, I always tell people that spend a lot of time with their dogs and have a good relationship. You'll know when you need to start obedience, <laughs> like the yeah. dog will tell you, right. Right. Like there, there's that day where the dog learns that he's faster than you and that yeah. there are things that are as or more interesting than you. Um, and uh, you just feel like you're at a loss. Well, you're at, you are at a loss at that point, you know? And for me with my dogs, I find that that's like 15 to 17 weeks old. So we start that process. And I mean, I can, I can have my puppies, if I start them at 16 weeks, in two weeks, I can have them not in a dead run, but puttering around the yard at any distance in my fenced in yard and tell them, whoa, and they stop. And I can walk all the way up to them. I can walk around them. I can, 
I can walk anywhere, you know, right. and, and they're good with that. And then we take it. Now we start to incorporate that into the, into the field. And it depends on the dog, you know, some dogs are like super easy going. It's like three weeks before the season. And I'm like, and I do like to have a, um, uh, a collar condition recall for safety up here. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, whether that's a five month old puppy or an 11 month old puppy going into the season by the time by labor day weekend, I'm, you know, with my own dogs by labor day weekend, our season opens the 15th of September by labor day weekend, you know, I have my puppy collar condition for recall, you know, uh, that's, that's, that's a must just for safety up here. So I'll do that, but there's lots of times and I'll run them with the Garmin in the summer. So they're used to it and everything long before they ever have any experiences with, uh, um, uh, any stimulation. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's, that's kind of the general trajectory, but my puppies, I will not, my rule is I will not, uh, carry a gun with my dog in the grouse woods or go in the grouse woods, whether they're five months old or 11 months old, if on the fly, I can't stop my dog with the woe command, you know? So for me, again, with all of training and development, it's about ensuring getting the results that you want. And a lot of that has to do with environmental setup and then how you handle your conduct yourself, obviously within that environmental setup for me with pointing dogs, I'm not a person that stands behind the phrase, let a puppy be a puppy. I I just think that's, it's too vague. I'll ride with it if you give it more body and definition, but yeah. it's 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 way too vague for me because again, they've been they've been pointing pigeons, you know, all summer, you know. They know what woe means, they know these things. So for me, it's not a matter of pressure. And to me, if again, semantics from one trainer to another, but I don't consider it pressure if the dog already knows the command, does it well, and you just give the command in the context that you want them to do it. Like the pressure part of it happens in the training, you know? Um, so for me, you know, I want every contact my dog has in the woods to be a successful contact. And I define a successful contact, not that the dog pointed it and I produced a flush. That is a successful contact, but a successful contact to me is also the dog accidentally bumped the bird, didn't know it was there, couldn't smell it, you know, scent trap, and the bird went up in close proximity, and I say, well, and the dog stops. That'd be great. Or, or the dog got into a scent pool, was confused, trying to figure it out, got too close to the bird, did smell the bird, and the bird goes, and I say, well, and it stops. Or the dog smells a scent cone, goes for broke to, to bust it, and it, and it busts the bird, and I say, well, and it stops. All those scenarios, my puppy whether it's five months old or 11 months old is going to listen to me because it already has those tools. We've isolated those chains. We've built it up to the grade levels to get to that point. Now, of course, yeah, the first several times that I have that experience with a puppy with, with grouse, especially get into a cubby and they're popping like popcorn, yeah. you know, and the, and the puppy is, yeah, I might have to say, whoa, six times, you know, but I can do it. It's not like I got to look at my Garmin, tone the dog back for recall, go run it down, you know, like, if you got to do all that, you are you are operating above your pay grade and you are creating more work for yourself. You're creating a bad routine, bad habits. And I'm that's not me. I'm just the triple type A guy that's like, okay, what can I do with this genetically awesome creature to just promote as smooth progress as possible? So to me, yeah, hunting season is 100 plus days a year. Learning season is 365. 
which means learning season is during hunting season too. Yeah. And that's how, that's how, you know, I'm always saying I'm looking for first season superstars. Well, if I want a first season superstar, you know, I need to pave the way for that to happen. And I've, again, I've trained dogs for almost everything under the sun minus herding sheep. And it all comes down to, yes, the dog has to have the genetic ability. Absolutely. Like I said, 80% matter of fact, in my opinion, but obedience makes or breaks dogs. I'm sure I'm not a test guy. I'm not a trial guy. Obviously, you know, you're not, you're not going to have a field trial champion Labrador if the dog is not on top of its a game when it comes to its command structures. Right. I mean, that's what it's all about. So, so that's, that's my take. I don't let first year dogs run wild and be able just to call them back with the tone on my collar. Like I I don't, you know, and, and in the grouse woods, 40 is an important number for me uh, because usually in early season, when there's a canopy grouse will flush 40 yards um, if they're not clearing the treetops, you know, in the, in the North woods, you know, New England covers, we got our abandoned farmland stuff. We'll see them fly from one mountainside to the other, <laughs> you know? Yep, yep. Um, but in the North woods here, um, it's different. I can usually hear, I have pretty good hearing despite all the shots I've done with shotguns. I can hear a flush from 40 yards away. I run my dog silent. So there's not a bell clanging in the dog's ears or mine. So there's that. And I can get to a dog that's on point 40 yards away pretty quickly. So it's kind of a match number for me. I know what's going on. Your dog could have a lot of point, and every time you get there, it produces a flush, but you just don't know what's going on. You know, I mean, and when your dog goes from 60 yards out to 120 yards out, you know, in 10 seconds, it probably busted a covey and is like Fourth of July going on in its head, but you don't know, you know. So I like, I like to, there's, a, there's enough unknowns out there. So I, I, I eliminate as many variables as I can in the learning process. Also, as far as getting the dog to come back and learn to go forward and stuff like I was describing earlier, that's easier yeah. to do when they're, when they're closer, you know? Absolutely. Kyle, we're going to have to do another episode, you know, sometime in the near future, because we could go into just a grouse hunting episode. I've got so many good questions that I, sure. I want to, yeah, I just, I want to hear some stories. I yeah. feel like we're just scratching the surface, well, buddy. I didn't get surface. a chance to chime in and this is, I love listening to you talk. I know it. Me too. Extremely thorough. You're very like data driven. Like everything that you're saying has a reason yeah. behind mm-hmm. it. And, and yeah. I, well, my hunt season's over, guys. So uh, I'm just here uh, trying to make some pups and uh, uh, get some paperwork done. So you guys let me know when you're available. We'll knock out another one here soon. Yeah, absolutely. So everybody who tuned in, thank you so much. This was Kyle Warren with Paint River Setters. He's got a great Instagram. His website's top notch. Check him out to learn more. Um, Thank you again. We appreciate you all tuning in every week to the lone d so thank you all kyle anything you want to add uh no i appreciate having me and i look forward to talking to you more absolutely hey patreon.com forward slash lone duck outfitters is a community that we built to help you and your dog on your journey to next duck season there's videos that don't hit youtube 
There's happy hours where we drink a couple beers and I answer your questions every other week. And by the way, if you join between now and September 1st, you're entered to win a hunt with me and Kevin and other Patreon members. So jump in. Let's go. Join the community. We appreciate it. And we'll see you there. Hey, listeners, Nick Larson here, host of the Bird Shop Podcast. As fans of this show, you may be interested in the conversations on the Bird Shop Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting, from upland birds and their habitat and conservation to the shotguns, bird dogs, and gear used to pursue them. Whether you're a seasoned upland hunter or just getting started and wanting to learn more, I interview a wide range of guests, each with their own unique perspective and valuable experience to share. If you're on the hunt for more upland hunting conversation, please consider subscribing to the Bird Shop Podcast today. Thank you.